Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our second video podcast of season two. Um, today, we have a special guest. We have Esther Yu. And what we're going to be talking about is the uh, Zoe organization that she works with. So um, thank you for joining us. Um, so before we begin, Esther, could you uh, just give us a little bit about your testimony, a little bit of background on how you became a believer? Yeah, so I grew up in a Christian family uh, with my two older sisters, and it wasn't really until uh, my sisters went away to college that um, they really started to explore whether they truly um, had a relationship with Christ or not. For me, I grew up um, learning about the Bible stories, understanding you know, who God is, um, following the rules because I really didn't want to go to hell. Mm. And um, it really wasn't until my sisters went to college and um, felt that they actually were not saved and ended up um, getting baptized in college at the church that they were at, just growing and learning more about a relationship with Christ, that uh, my oldest sister started reaching out to me uh, when she was in college um, wanting to um, ask me about my relationship with God and really mm -hmm. desiring for me to have a real relationship with Christ. She and I, growing up, I really don't have a lot of um, positive memories. <laughs> we have a large age gap growing up, and so she and I were really distant, and we only really, I was the annoying little sister, and we fought quite a bit and um, just didn't have much of a relationship. But after she became a believer in college, she would come back um, and really show authentic love and care to me. Mm. And she wrote me a letter of wow. seeking my forgiveness for the way that she treated me and wow. um, just really wanting to love me. And I really felt and saw such a huge difference in who she was. Mm. And it made me um, want that too. And so that's when I started exploring, you know, how to have a relationship with Christ and studying his word because I wanted to learn about who he was. And, um, and I think for me, I really felt before that all the things that I did, um, made me in right standing with Jesus. But I think it was in learning more and more understanding that I am a sinner and in need of a savior. And before that, I really didn't understand that I um, am in need of a savior. And so it was in that, I don't have a day that it happened, but I just know that um, sometime in my, uh, about my sophomore year in high school, that I um, just started growing in relationship um, with Christ and um, wanting to turn my life uh around for him and living for him and recognizing that I'm a sinner in need of a savior and uh, repenting and um, just desiring for my life to be about pleasing Jesus. All right, very nice. Um, <clears throat> similar, to, similar to mine in the sense that I don't have a specific date as well. I kind of grew up in the church. And so, I, I mean, I, I hear people when they say that, right? I know some people, um, they tell you, well, you have to have a date where you're saved. I'm like, well, I can't. I can't bring it up out of the air, you know, I, I don't know. So um, just out of curiosity, um, what, what did you guys fight about, you and your oldest <laughs> sister? I mean, it was just like, I mean, me and my brother, we used to fight all the time over anything. I think if there was an opportunity to fight, we would do it, you know. Um, I think I really didn't 
know how to engage with her. And the only way I knew how to engage with her was to bother her. Uh. So she was, you know, in her teen years and didn't want to be bothered. And I would bother her. So uh. I would be, you know, throwing th- things at her in her room <laughs> or setting up um, traps where she would open the door and things would fall on her. Oh, wow. Or, um, you know, she would. So you were the instigator then in many of these conflicts. I think so. I think, okay. um, and then I think, um, and then she just didn't pay any attention to me. Ah. Whereas my um, younger, my middle sister, who was older than me, she and I had always had to share a room. Hmm. So she and I were much closer and and had a relationship. Wow, I didn't know this. I've, I've, I've known Esther for a long time as well, too. And I did not know that portion of setting traps and stuff. That, <laughs> that would actually have been a very funny time. Um, oh, very nice, very nice. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of, your work with Zoe, um, could you give us a little bit of a background on what exactly your responsibilities are and maybe even give us kind of a background of Zoe itself? Mm -hmm. So Zoe International was founded in 2001 by Michael and Carol Hart, who were working in the film industry. They had a lighting company. They had a successful business. And when they first heard about human trafficking, that Mm -hmm. children were being bought and sold for labor and sex in today's day, um, they couldn't believe it. There was somebody who had come to their church to share about it. So they wanted to see for themselves. And um, they ended up establishing... Uh, Zoe International, and they sold their business. They sold their house wow. um, and moved out to Thailand is where where it began. And back then, there really wasn't a lot of information or um, experts to look to to find the way of how to help. And so they really um, forged um, a new ground and pioneered the work um, alongside everybody else. And so in Thailand, they started a children's home um, to help um, children who are at risk of uh, being sold into slavery and um, eventually focusing the work on um, helping to rescue kids that are um, in a trafficking situation. And so Zoe's mission is to reach every person with the good news of Jesus and to rescue every child from human trafficking. Okay. So that is Zoe. And then um, we operate in five countries. So we are in Thailand, USA, Mexico, Japan, and Australia. And in regards to um, reaching every person with the good news of Jesus, we have evangelism programs, discipleship programs, um, mentorship, uh, missions programs. Um, and then with the human trafficking, we have prevention. So we work to educate communities about human trafficking. We do rescue where we work alongside law enforcement and social workers to help rescue children out of trafficking situations. And then we work in restoration, which is to provide a safe home for children to live. <clears throat> we, uh, Our church, we went on a missions trip with uh, David and Esther when they were working in Thailand. And I want to say there was about 18 of us that went that time. And, you know, I was aware of some of these things. But again, I think because of where we are at, the influences that we have, certain information never kind of comes across our table. And so when, um, I believe it was Mike that was talking about it in one of the sessions, he said that at this current time, this this information might be a little bit outdated, that <clears throat> there's 27 million kids that are trafficked in the year. And, you know, I looked at that, and I remember thinking about that. I go, 27 million? I mean, there's so many countries in this world that don't have 27 million in their population. 
right? And so that's like, I mean, that's an astounding number, and yet we were so unaware of of that information. So it was very eye-opening. So in terms of how do you help out with Zoe? Yeah, well, let me just give a, a just a slight correction okay, to okay. that. So back then, I think he probably gave the number um, twenty about twenty million okay. um, people globally were estimated at that time to be trafficking victims. So not just children, but I adults see. as well. Um, cur- the current number, based on a report by the International Labor Organization, um, they estimate twenty four point nine uh, million people are globally trafficked. Wow. Um, However, they now include uh, forced marriages in that number. So sometimes you might hear 40.3 million people if you include forced marriages. Can you talk a little bit about what a forced marriage is? So that would be, and it it happens um, a lot in um, like the Middle East or um, in Africa. And it would be when a person is forced to marry somebody, sold to be forced to marry somebody, um, children as well as adults. So it's not like... um you know, your parents forcing you, quote unquote, to marry somebody you don't really like, but it's literally you're being sold to as a wife or a husband or whatever into that marriage. And selling could be in the form of money, but it could also be in the form of other material Like payment to the parents, et cetera? Wow, okay. Um, Wow, so how do you specifically Mm -hmm. fit into this Zoe company? So back in 20... uh, Think here. It was back in 2017. No, back. Sorry, back in 2011. Um, David and myself, because we had always longed to do um, missions work abroad, uh, we were able um, through the uh, support of Emmanuel Bible Church go out as missionaries to Thailand with Zoe International. So we were out there for five years um, in Thailand helping with, um, I was able to help with the counseling program. And then David was able to help with what they call the Mercy Network, basically educating uh, pastors in rural villages about um, human trafficking, but also training them um, about um, how to be a great resource for the community in material and spiritual needs. So he was able to do that. So we were out there for five years with our three kids. Uh, my youngest, Ali, was born out in Thailand. Mm. And then we moved back um, in 2017 um, back to L.A. And David um, is no longer with Zoe, but he is back with Emmanuel Bible Church. And I was able to stay on with Zoe to help with our Los Angeles work. And so now I'm currently the Assistant Western USA Regional Director. And my uh, role is really to help oversee one of our programs, which is the Advocacy Program. And that is where we are partnering with law enforcement, social workers, probation officers, when they identify a child who is a victim of sex trafficking, then we can come alongside those partners to provide victim advocacy services Mm -hmm. and support. Or if they think a child has a lot of signs that they may be getting trafficked, so we would call them at risk, uh, then we can also come alongside them and build relationship to prevent them from becoming a victim. And then we are also days away from opening up our new Zoe Home for Youth Mm. in North LA County. And that'll be a home that is specifically licensed to provide residential and therapeutic care for children who are identified as labor or sex trafficking victims. Wow. You know, again, um, eye-opening. It's like I've I've been living in LA all my life. And yet, 
<clears throat> when you mentioned before that you know U.S. is one of the countries that Zoe works with, um, you know it's 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 a country that I don't really imagine or equate with uh, child trafficking. So even in our own backyard here, you're opening in North North LA in a few days. Can you kind of I don't know if you have the numbers in in front of you or whatever, but kind of talk a little bit about what statistics that LA has uh, in regards to this. So based on reports, this is purely from uh, law enforcement when they recover kids 24-7 off the streets in motels um, in different places. Um, hundreds of kids are wow. recovered from sex trafficking situations. Wow. Uh, labor trafficking is a little bit harder to identify, but that is definitely present and happening. And there's more concerted effort to try to identify signs of labor trafficking of children. Uh, but it looks different internationally sometimes versus mm. domestically here in the U.S. I think internationally, um, you know, it could be, for example, a, f a family that um, is poor. They live mm. in a rural village and maybe the parents are working all day and kids are not monitored and supervised. Um, and maybe somebody, even a friend may approach that family and say that they want to, uh, provide a good education for that child because there's no schooling in that area. So they ask the parents if they could become the guardians of that child and take them to school, or maybe it would be to help give a job to that child. And so then the parents trusting that person will, um, allow that child to go with them, but it ends up being a false situation where that child is forced to work in labor or um, sex trafficking. And so um, that could be a situation or it could be uh, even in Thailand, a teenager who is in need of money and maybe her friend is already being sold for sex and that friend knows that child needs money and offers them a job and the girl ends up going to um, a motel and not realizing what wow. is involved and she realizes that she's supposed to have sex with this person. And mm. um, so th there's situations like that here in America. Um, there are many different ways. Um, I think the common understanding of the public is movies like Taken or those um, other sensational stories where maybe a person might be kidnapped um, and then trapped and sold. But mo more commonly in the U.S., because traffickers uh, don't want to be detected, it's sometimes more subtle where a uh, older guy might approach a young girl and pretend to be, have interest in her romantically. And mm. so this girl thinks that this older guy is interested in her and he might start showing her a lot of attention, care, give her material things. Um, and so she believes she's in a relationship with this person and not knowing that this person, this is their MO. This is the way they operate. He, they do this over and over again with multiple, multiple girls and women. And eventually at some point when this girl has slowly been isolated from safe people in her life, she starts to trust this person and doesn't have a lot of safe people in her life anymore. This relationship can easily turn into an abusive one where he may threaten, uh, pressure, influence her into uh, maybe just trying to make some money and maybe just this one time and asking her to go meet somebody to um, have sex with them and making money. And so that is sometimes the entry into that. Some kids who live in group homes in LA County 
Um, they don't, they come from abusive homes. They don't have family to take care of them. So they're taken care of by the system. They're living in a group home and there they may meet uh, an older girl who, you know, maybe that child doesn't want to live there. She says she wants to get out of there. An older girl may say, let's run away together. I, you know, I know somebody who can take care of us. And so they run away. This girl's trusting this friend and they go and stay with somebody they think is just a friend of theirs. And um, after some point, we know of stories where a girl may be immediately um, physically harmed or given drugs and forced into trafficking and other situations where a girl who has nowhere to go now is pressured into a trafficking situation. So it, it looks different um, here mm -hmm. in L.A., here in America, where there definitely are girls who are kidnapped, who are um taken by gangs um, into trafficking situations. But a lot, most of the time with the children that we work with, uh, it's a slow grooming process where they themselves don't even realize that they've been targeted to become a victim of trafficking. They think they themselves fell into a relationship and fell into this and even chose this life, um, not realizing just like a perpetrator might slowly groom and abuse a child for physical or sexual abuse, um, in the same way they've been groomed for trafficking. Wow. Um, is there a certain type that these traffickers are looking for? Um, certain areas that they actually go to? Um, certain people that they talk to to know that there's these people are from broken homes or whatever to target? So traffickers will target a need. And, you know, they're looking for children who have a need. And that really is everybody. Mm -hmm. But um, they're looking for a, a, a need for love, a mm -hmm. need for a relationship, a need for a friend, a need for money, housing, the basic needs, food. Um, and in a, in a place where, you know, a child is in their most vulnerable place, a trafficker is targeting that need in, and actually meeting that need in order to exploit them, in order mm -hmm. to take advantage of them. Versus if instead that child met somebody who had authentic care and love to meet that need, who you know didn't want to take advantage of them, how different that course of that life of that child would be. But um, oftentimes these kids do meet um, somebody who doesn't have good intentions and they often do it target foster care youth, they might even mm. literally be driving around a group home, waiting for kids to come out and um, offering them things, offering them a place to stay, offering them food, offering them a romantic relationship, a cell phone. Um, we've seen children who grow up in suburban, even Christian communities where they are following uh, social media influencers that are mm. unknown to the mainstream public, but they are known to young kids. They're popular amongst young kids who have hundreds and thousands of followers. And it might be a woman who's posting dance or provocative videos. And then this woman may uh, direct message a child and ask her, do you want to go to a party? And then this young girl may say yes, and then they'll send an Uber or a car directly to them to pick them up, take them to a party, and at this party maybe um, where there's adults having sex with children. And um, so really with the internet, regardless of where you live, I know families will often try to move to what they feel like are safe communities, safe schools. 
because of the internet, uh, predators and traffickers have equal access to any child, no matter where they live. And so um, certainly kids who are more vulnerable because of financial or material or, you know, emotional need, um, they are even more vulnerable, but really any child is vulnerable. Um, and for adults, though, same thing for adults, they are vulnerable as well because of need. Um, but, but for adults, the exact definition of trafficking, there has to be an element of force, fraud, or coercion in order for it to be considered human trafficking. So for adults, it might look like maybe somebody coming from another country to the U.S. thinking that they're going to work here, um, but and then their passports are taken away from them, um, and then they're actually forced into work at a massage parlor or um, another form of work that they didn't think that they had to do, um, and they're trapped because they their documentation has been taken away, or maybe they're undocumented. Um, and so that is where they're forced or defrauded um, or coerced in a way where they may be threatened that if they don't do this thing that they're going to have harm brought to them. And so if, if there's any element of that where an adult feels that there was force, fraud, or coercion, that could, can be considered human trafficking. But for a child, um, you don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion because for a child, we know that an adult having sex with a child is Illegal. rape. And so, um, and they, because they can't consent, you know, as a child. And so with money on the table being paid for a sexual act, um, even if a child says, I wanted to make some money, um, we understand that you can't consent to be paid, you know, for sex. And so in that situation, it would still be considered human trafficking. Well, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I wrote down all these questions, but as you're talking, there's so many more that keep coming up in my mind. Um, just to, out of curiosity for those of us who don't know, what is a group home that you mentioned several times? So a group home is America's system of uh, foster care. So basically when a child doesn't have a safe family to live with, they don't have safe relatives to stay with, they if there's a foster family they can live with um, and and take care of them, that they could go to a foster family. But if there isn't, they would live in a group home where there would be um, several children living in a home together. It would be basically America's uh, system of like an orphanage, which in other countries are called orphanages or children's homes. But in America, they're group homes. In California, we're now getting rid of this idea of a group home, and they're now called short-term <laughs> residential therapeutic programs, STRTPs. Wow, <laughs> so, um, but the main idea is a group home, which is basically where um, children would go to live if they don't have safe places to go to. Wow. Um, when, uh, when I was uh, on the mission trip, uh, one of the things that we did was we took a weekend and we went and visited one of the villages. And I remember one of the main things that... Um, the Thai people who are working for Zoe, one of the biggest things they wanted to do in the villages, we visited multiple, is they wanted to educate the people, especially the parents, on what predators could look like. And they said exactly what you said is they'll come and say, hey, you know what, we'll give you an opportunity for education because there's a poor. I mean, they're not going to be have the opportunity. And they said, be very careful. And uh, I mean, it just seems like... Um, these traffickers are finding any vulnerability and they're going to expose it. And so what I'm hearing from Zoe is that they're going to provide the need in a genuine way. And it seems like most of them, um, I don't know all the kids, of course, but it seems like having good relationships is what they're missing. 
like genuine, caring relationships. And that's why these guys can feed on them, right? They can come and say, hey, we'll give you this, we'll give you this. And um, it seems like there's a lot of time they invest in order to capture these kids, you know? Yeah. Um, There's a lot of effort. Back in the day, you know, predators had to go to where the children are. So like the 7-Elevens, the parks, the around the schools, bus stops. Um, nowadays, where the children are is the internet. Mm. So, and nowadays, you know, back then you had to kind of learn the child to try to figure out who they are, to try to connect with them. Predators nowadays don't have to do much work because children Stay blast publicly everything mm. about their life and their interests and who they are. So they don't really have to do a lot of work because they all they have to do is is follow them and and see and and message them. And so um, when you mention, man, if they just had caring people yeah. in their life, that's exactly what it is. We say that if you know research shows that for vulnerable kids, if they had one caring adult in their life, mm. it could change the course of their life. And so, you know, that's really where I think the church can come mm. in. Um, not only with, you know, for every family, for you to be making sure that your own kids, you know, you're connected with your own kids, you're, you're keeping in touch, especially as they go to the, through their adolescent years mm. and start to disconnect from the family and from parents. And the strongest voice in their life is no longer their parents sometimes, making sure that they're still um, investing in and, and trying hard to stay connected to their kids, to see what they're doing on the internet, um, because that is really where traffickers and predators who want to abuse children are going to try to reach the kids. Um, I think a lot of kids who come from healthy, loving Christian families, um, just going through normal adolescence, you know, they are posting on their social media or experiencing, you know, feelings of depression or longing, you know, feeling isolated, longing to be um, liked by others. And very easily, this is where people can not only fake being somebody that they're not on the internet, but also they can also just start to establish a relationship with a, a child, you know, via the internet and slowly pull them away from their core group of friends and pull them into, um, you know, trying to meet them outside of the internet and um, it becoming something worse. So I think this is a very strong message to the church, uh, like you mentioned, that all of us can, you know, we may not work for Zoe or be employed, but if we're actually showing care for just the kids or, you know, people around us, um, I mean, your stat by, about one adult having a good relationship with a child can change their course i mean we don't have to hardly do anything except just to listen maybe care for them you know and talk over with them and build that relationship so it's it's a very strong message to the church um that we should be doing this anyway but that you know we should do it if we're kind of being lax about it um so along that line can you kind of talk i'm sure that you have a million of these cases but can you talk about just maybe one of these children that you actually helped or the organization has helped? Yeah, maybe I could share one um, like in Thailand and then one in L.A. because it looks different. But um, in Thailand, we had um, a, a young girl and her friend who were um, being labor trafficked and they were trapped. And um, there was word on the street about a place called Zoe. Kids, Some kids had heard on the street about mm. a place like Zoe, they weren't sure if it was real. Um, and uh, the trafficker actually said, avoid this area. We don't want you to go to this area. Mm -hmm. And the child thought to herself, maybe it's because 
they're going to do like an operation and maybe, you know, police and maybe Zoe's going to be there. Um, and she ended up actually going to that area and it actually was um, an operation and Zoe was there and we were able to recover mm -hmm. her. And um, after we brought her to Zoe, she said, my friend, I still you know, want my friend to be recovered. And uh, much later, we were also able to bring her friend as well um, to Zoe. Um, and so in those situations, we work alongside police when there is some information that trafficking is going on. We'll partner alongside them to be present when they are going to recover the children. Um, here in LA, it looks different in the sense that because the children are often slowly groomed, even if you recover them from a trafficking situation, let's say even from a motel where a child was being trafficked or even off the streets and they are taken right back to their home, mm or a group home, a lot of times that child is still being controlled and influenced by a trafficker. So mm. we'll see them run away right away back to the trafficker because when the child was with them, the trafficker was already giving them many threats or lies about, you know, if you don't come back, I'm going to harm you. If you say something to the police, I'm going to harm you. I know where your family lives. Um, a lot of, or they may have already experienced physical violence or even sexual violence from the trafficker. And so the fear of, coming out of that might be scarier mm. than staying there. And so a lot of the times the kids will, will go right back. So what we do is when police or a social worker connects us to a child who's a victim or highly at risk of becoming a victim, we slowly build a relationship with them, mm. just teaching them how to keep themselves safe. Um, you know, just providing an authentic loving relationship and, in that and through that, um, helping that child think about, you know, what they want for their life, goals for their life, and um, slowly helping them to come out of a, of a trafficking relationship where this child might, you know, be running away while we're serving that child, but we're continuing to be there for them. And at some point, this child um, feels like she has enough safety and, and care and enough trust that she's willing to try to bravely step out of a trafficking situation and leave um, because she feels like um, she has enough safety to come out of that. Because the big risk that they take is if they choose to come out and say, I believe you, I'm going to, I'm going to take you up on your offer. I'm going to come out and, and stop going back to the trafficker because you're saying that there's all these good things available for me. But yet if the system can't provide those things mm -hmm. and we can't find them a safe home to live in, we can't mm -hmm. um, provide for a lot of their needs um, and they're unhappy, then if they go back, to that trafficker, they'll face consequences of having left mm. in the first place. So it takes a lot of trust and risk for that child to be willing to come out and take a chance on us. And so um, we just really work on um, building relationship with that child, um, praying that on those early moments that they might see, you know, who we are, that they can have eyes to see that we are safe people and really genuinely care about them. Um, but what I want to say about LA is I went out during the pandemic because I had heard that statistically things were still going on and still very high. Um, and it, it's hard to believe this, but in this day and age in America, in LA, on the streets, I went out to one of the streets that is known for trafficking uh, on a Friday night, went out with another group that um, goes out and does outreach to the women and girls and saw for myself that, you know, on a main street in LA, 
There were about 30 blocks of women and girls standing on the street wearing next to nothing, um, literally being sold for sex. And what was even more shocking was seeing the lines of cars like a drive-thru where we literally couldn't even drive into a street because there were so many cars weaving in and out of the side streets, basically talking to the girls to decide which girls they were going to purchase. And so that is happening today, every day on the streets. And, um, you know, we work in collaboration with police to, you know, try to help recover those individuals. You can't tell by looking at them which ones are children, but children are amongst, you know, these women. And you can't tell on the streets by looking at the women that they're victims of human trafficking because it appears that they're there by choice. But you actually have traffickers that are watching them on the streets nearby. Um, and, you know, so... I have heard stories of girls who have told us they were working, quote, working on the track is what it's called. And um, she begged the trafficker, it's so cold, I'm so tired, I don't want to do it anymore. And he forced her to remain on the street. So what you see on the street is not always what it appears. Well, I mean, that's, I, I, I guess I'm shocked that I'm actually shocked. But how is it that like the police, I mean, if you know about this and all these People know about this. Why is it the police aren't like doing something about this? So it is very difficult to prove uh, human trafficking cases. Um, and I want to just give a little word. Uh, Zoe is, is providing education on this as well. I can tell you right now, there is a movement to take away the tools that police have for them to be able to talk to these girls to identify which ones are victims. Right now there are laws and penal codes in California so that um, when they suspect loitering for uh, what they call prostitution or solicitation for prostitution, that police can use to talk with these women um, and figure out if they're trafficking victims, figure out if they're minors. Uh, right now we have a movement to eliminate and repeal these laws because there's a movement nationwide for the decriminalization of prostitution. Because um, the message is that um, women, especially African-American women and girls, are disproportionately being criminalized um, in the criminal justice system for prostitution. Um, But by eliminating all these things, they're also eliminating consequences for the buyers and the traffickers themselves. And so, so they're trying to legalize prostitution, basically. Right. So, um, but going back to what you said is what is the police doing? So it's, it, what they do is they have operations to you know, go out on their street and um, talk to the women to, to find out if they are victims. Obviously, a lot of the times the women do not want to talk to police. Yeah. Um, and then they have other operations where they use to uh, arrest the buyers of trafficking. Wow. I mean, it just... You know, I, I, I look back and just your stat about 24.5 million, possibly going over to 40 million with forced marriages. Um, I mean, this is, the number is growing, right? And so, again, you could say that it's because the population is growing, whatever you want to say, right? But I think it really comes down to there wouldn't be this, these situations, these um, traffickers, if there wasn't a desire for it. There wasn't a want for it, right? And so, I mean, just hearing about lines of cars, I mean, that's, that's crazy to me. Yes. You know? So we don't hear a lot about the demand, but in order for trafficking to flourish, you need a demand yeah. for commercial sex. And so um, that's why, you know, we and other organizations that work in trafficking, uh, we 
you know, want to emphasize that point that we also need to target um, this demand piece. And that's really where the church yeah. comes in because, you know, we believe that the end to, we just always in it to end trafficking, end child trafficking. And, you know, we believe that the end is through the church. We believe that it's, it's God through the church. And, you know, we know that trafficking exists because of broken families, because of, you know, needs and wants materially, but also spiritually, emotionally. And the church can be present to support vulnerable children and families. Um, you know, people, men and women who are struggling with pornography, you mm. know, for the church to be an active uh, voice, to be vigilant about, you know, um, making sure that they are not consumers of uh, pornography. Many people in the pornography industry are victims themselves. Um, when mm. you hear actual survivor stories of people from pornography, it appears again like they are willing participants, but many times they've been groomed into it um, and have been trafficked as well into pornography. Um, and so the church really has a place to be a part of of the healing process. And just to shore, share a success story of our dream and vision of how the church can partner, we were able to connect a family, you know, who had material needs um, because they were actually moving from shelter to shelter, renting room to room because they were trying to escape traffickers and unsafe oh. people. So they found themselves in an area and they were living out of a room with, you know, several children. Their actual ch young child had gone missing, um, due to trafficking. And so we were able to connect them to a local church who come, came alongside them to provide um, beds and mattresses that they needed, just material needs, but they also wanted to provide any kind of uh, spiritual, emotional support that they were needing and willing to take from them. Eventually this church, you know, invited them to come to church. This a single mom and her other kids started going to church. She didn't even have a car. Somebody would transport her to go to church. Uh, one of the older daughters started to get involved in helping in the children's ministry. Wow. Um, the family started going to the pastor's house for dinner. Um, the, the teen daughter and the mom would go to a women's group. And then the other uh, the family, the younger brothers would go and hang out with the other little boys eating snacks and watching a movie. It was the first time they had ever experienced safe people in their lives because mm -hmm. everybody around them growing up had really been unsafe people. And for three months, this other child was missing and Zoe was working alongside the family, alongside law enforcement to try to find this missing child. Well, the law enforcement did find the child and they were able to, as a church, celebrate, you know, mm. because they had been praying for this missing child to come home safely. And they were able to celebrate and this child being able to come back to this whole community of support. When she left, they were in a shelter in downtown LA, um, you know, by themselves with nobody. But when she came back, it was a whole community of love and support. Mm. The pastor's family invited their family over for a meal, you know, and, and taking care of them. And they've still stayed alongside them. They're now living in a shelter um, and able to, you know, slowly work towards rebuilding and, and being on their own. But the church is still very much a part of their lives and, and coming alongside and supporting them. You know, that's, um, I mean, that, that's such a great story, you know, um, I think that that reflects on um, what Greg Gilbert talks about in his book Evangelism. It's just the the culture of evangelism is in the church. 
And that's exactly what's happened, you know. I mean, the pastor gets involved, the daughter gets involved, the entire church gets involved, and they celebrate. And uh, I think that that's, that's a great message. I mean, it's encouragement for our church too, right, that we would yeah. pick that up. Because um, if it's one person doing the work, it might be a little bit burdensome. Mm-hmm. But if the entire community, the church community is doing it, it uh, becomes a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that, that's a great success story. Um, we, we see that these families don't have safe people in their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the times I feel like, man, if they just had a, a church the way that we know, you know, Meals on Wheels or crisis support, and that is what these churches, um, these in families don't have. And traffickers are, are really targeting, again, we're talking about vulnerability, yeah. We run a parenting class. We have a parenting class, um, both in English and Spanish, for families who've been impacted by trafficking. And these families are are barely surviving and living on their own. And now you've got a trafficker who's found their child, and this child is running away, you know, being brutally beaten, um, sexually assaulted, coming back to the house, in and out, in and out. This family doesn't know what to do. They're barely putting food on the table trying to work. And this is what our communities are facing in terms of these traffickers know how vulnerable these families are, that they have nothing, and they continue to target these kinds of families who don't have support to help them. And so these families are trapped in a situation. They can, can't even move out of their area because they don't have the finances to do so. And so Zoe comes alongside them to try to help. Um, even We've helped families move because of safety reasons um, and, and escaping traffickers, escaping gangs. Um, but that's what we're facing. And even we've also come alongside families who come from really, you know, great Christian families with so much support and they're struggling themselves trying to keep this child, um, out of the hands of traffickers. It's, it's a lot like addiction, what you might see in, um, a, a family that experiencing a person who is addicted to substance abuse and it's so hard to pull them out of that. That's a lot like what trafficking looks like when once a child has been exploited and uh, brought into that life, it's very difficult to bring them out. Well, I mean, there's lots of stuff going on. I know we're doing a podcast, but I feel like I'm learning a lot of stuff myself. You know, here. Um, Just a few more questions. So we actually, you actually covered uh, one of these, I think, but it's about misconceptions. And I think for us living in LA, we have the misconception that, oh, no, this is like some other country that this problem happens in. Can you kind of talk about maybe two or three misconceptions that we we could have towards child trafficking? Yeah, I think the big one is that people still think trafficking is happening in other countries, mm. developing nations. Um, they're very shocked to hear that we're opening a home for children yeah. that come from LA that are being trafficked, um, that people think that it's where children are are kidnapped and trapped and literally physically chained. Uh, trafficking is much more about the psychological chains. You know, you see those stories of a child that goes missing and they get found, but then there were video clips of them like at a liquor store with the perpetrator who had oh. kidnapped them. Um, 
you know, and, and they're not physically chained to them. And, and you see those stories of kidnapping that make those the media attention. And you wonder, why did that child just run away? It's because of a lot of the, the things that the perpetrator had done to groom that child so that they don't have to physically chain them in public. And so that's what trafficking looks like is um, the victims are not physically chained and trapped, but they are psychologically, you know, trapped and connected to, you know, the, mm-hmm. the trafficker. Some traffickers even impregnate the the victims and so now not only that but they're forever you know connected to the trafficker so i would say that that's a misconception um as well as um you know that that this only happens in certain communities um but it really can happen in in every community when i go to speak at a church or a event um, I look up local stories that can mm-hmm. connect to the audience, and I can always find local stories of trafficking because it's happening in every city. Wow, wow! I mean, again, it's 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 shocking in in some ways, but it's also it's very sad in other ways, right? It's like how many of us have lived our lives not even thinking about this, right? We just kind of go our day to day. Just backtracking a little bit, when you kind of mentioned that uh, traffickers use all these techniques, and you know, back in Thailand, um, these traffickers said avoid this area because of the Zoe, and you said this girl went there and, and was saved. W- have you actually come across a situation where traffickers are trying to um, say that they're Zoe or that they're a you know they're a good organization, that type of thing, kind of replacing the idea that. Um, you know, we're here to do something, you know, education wise, but they're trying to twist it a little bit. Right. And, and kids get caught in that type of trap. I have not heard too many. Thankfully, I have not okay. heard too many stories of um, individuals pretending. Obviously, you know, somebody who might be in a trusted profession could be a trafficker. More of that is possible. I think more likely is where um you know, when you look at the average person, you think that the buyers of sex, you think that the um, traffickers look a certain kind of way, but, um, you know, buyers of sex as well, they are not like the creepy mm. old men or they're, they're even your pastors <laughs> sometimes in the community, wow. sadly, um, in terms of who gets arrested. It's all across the board, businessmen, wow. professionals, family men, most married. Um, and so, you know, in terms of... You, you said most are married. A lot of them are married, you know, buyers, you know, because they actually think that they're helping these women and children because they think that they're giving them money. That's the way that they justify it themselves sometimes, that they're, you know, contributing to to helping them. Um, but, you know, the misconception, I think, is that those who participate in trafficking and consume it um, is a certain type of person, but it's all across the board when you look at, you know, who is involved. So profession wise, it doesn't have a certain group that uses the, you know, the child trafficking more than other groups. Like you, like, you know, I kind of think it's like the grungy guys, you know, like the drug addicts or whatever, they got nothing else to do. They will do this, but it's like the professionals, businessmen, even maybe, I don't know. I don't want to say if it's not true, but athletes, you know, professional athletes, unfortunately, pastors and believers, um, 
Yeah, they they um, definitely participate in consuming in terms of purchasing, and then um, some involved in. You hear news stories of some involved in actually um, selling individuals, selling, selling wow. individuals as well. So um, we knew of even um, young athletes, and you know, uh, going to college that were actually selling girls. Wow. You know, and they what they do is they invite girls to parties, and it, I think the misunderstanding is where trafficking is happening, what it looks like nowadays. The ones that are harder to detect are the ones on the streets. You can see it's right there, but the ones that are harder to investigate and find are the ones that are going on at parties. One girl told us who comes from a suburban community um, that it's where the drugs are, and where the drugs are is where the money is. So it is these um, more wealthy schools where parties are happening where there is an exchange. So trafficking, sex trafficking is when there's an exchange of a sexual act for something of value. It doesn't have to be money. If a child was offered drugs for a sex act, mm. if a child was offered housing for a sex act, that could be considered trafficking. And so teenagers themselves don't even realize they're involved in trafficking because they may exchange like a nude photo of a girl in exchange for something that's trafficking. And so when we educate schools and we go and talk to teenagers, you, we, we explain these stories. You can see the looks on the faces of some of these kids because they realize that they've been participating in some form of commercial sexual exploitation. And so, um, you know, that that's one of the misconceptions as well. So um, last one or two questions. Uh, you mentioned pornography earlier. So, um, how would you, you know, how would you put the impact of pornography towards these guys who use, um, you know, prostitution or trafficking of of these girls? Um, would you say it's a significant contribution, or is it something that? Nah, it's not really there, et cetera. Um, yeah, I absolutely think that pornography is a gateway to trafficking and participating in. Um, the commercialization of sex because that's what it is, you know? And so um, it's the dehumanization of, you know, those that they're watching. Um, they're not seeing them as people. And it's it's the self-gratification for whatever it is that they're, uh, why they're consuming it. It's the breakdown of the family in terms of them. Um, that's the easy access for whatever need that they're fulfilling by consuming it, that they're not working on, you know, within their own life and their own mm -hmm. heart. Um, and so, you know, in consuming it and becoming addicted to it, it's highly addictive, like a drug. Um, and, you know, once they are addicted to that, um, and, and don't have control over that, um, and they're involved in that. And because it's also a, a secret, you know, hidden sin, mm -hmm. it's, sh it's shameful, it's hard to have accountability in that because of the shame that's attached to it. And there aren't a lot of safe spaces for men or women to speak about struggling with consuming, you know, pornography. And so all of those elements, you know, being there, um, because it's often a, a secret sin and that can easily then turn into a addiction that can easily, um, you know, go undetected for many years um, before it's discovered. And then that person then, it's very much a stepping stone because a lot of the advertisements that are on those sites are um, places that you can purchase sex. And, you know, it's a very quick step as well. It's hard to avoid once you're involved in that to not see 
child pornography, children, oh. you know, and, um, and so because you're likely consuming that, um, it's not that far of a step away to suddenly find yourself, um, paying for sex, you know, and in Thailand, um, it got to the point sometimes where men could go into a bar and, um, they could just buy somebody a drink somewhere and, um, exchange sex. So it was very confusing in terms of those lines, um, where you're not sometimes literally paying money. Um, it, there was, there was a lot, um, of nuances, you know, there. Wow. I mean, um, I mean, the message is very loud and clear, right? I even listened to um, Ted Bundy. Uh, it was focused mm-hmm. on the family. Mm-hmm. He did an interview a long time ago before they executed him. And, um, you know, in the interview, he stated that all these violent criminals, like himself killing, I forget how many girls, maybe 13, 14, somewhere on there, um, all these serial killers, they got their start from pornography, he said. You know, he said mm-hmm. it's just the progress mm-hmm. of, watching it visually wasn't enough Mm -hmm. they needed the next level Mm -hmm. and then it just kept going and going and so um it's not surprising to me that um you know pornography is the gateway to this stuff Mm -hmm. um i mean it's it's in many ways it's very sad for me to hear Mm -hmm. that there's such a demand for this Mm -hmm. you know um but maybe i shouldn't really be shocked you know because it is I mean, our sinful natures, right? We we find ways to um, find we find ways to do sin, basically. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, well, and in regards to demand, there's a demand. This is what is so horrific. There is a demand for people to pay to see children being sexually abused on the internet. Because of that demand, families just, film sexually abusing children to make money off of that. Because there's a demand for it. And I think that's the thing that we really need to come to terms with is that people wouldn't be producing this if they they couldn't get something for it. It's people are looking. There's literally searching for this. And I think, you know, trafficking, you know, there are many vices and horrible things in the world. But I think trafficking, especially child trafficking, has every element because our children have experienced domestic violence, substance abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, you know, every form of harm our children are experiencing, and that's what we're trying to pull them out of. And so I think, um, you know, the church can really um, be a light in this by, I think churches really need to create safe spaces for individuals who are struggling themselves with um, sexual addiction. I think think it's safe to say that every church— you know, we'll have individuals who oh, are struggling yeah, with, um, you know, with um, sexual temptation and, and sexual addiction. And it's very important for the churches to um, really create a place where there can be good accountability um, so that, you know, even our children, because of the Internet, they have earlier exposure. It's, it's If your children are on the Internet, they're going to have exposure. No matter what we do to try to protect them from it, it's so difficult to you know keep that from them. And so knowing that, our families need to be prepared in, how, in teaching our kids what to do, you know, if they are exposed to it and, and how to protect themselves and knowing, um, you know, finding signs that our child, children maybe even might be addicted without us even knowing mm. uh, because this is the start of them um, being a consumer of it and also them being 
victims of it. A lot of the kids that are victims have been exposed to, you know, obviously they've been sexually abused, but also exposed to sexual content. And so it's not, um, unfortunately their norm is often, um, it's not that hard for them, uh, in terms of what they're experiencing in sexual exploitation because they've often been already sexually abused or um, have been exposed to pornography at young ages. So, wow. I mean, again, there's, um, I wrote down a list, but every time you keep talking, there's more questions that keep coming to my mind, but, um, we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up here. Um, so I guess, I mean, I know you've, given us a lot of information, but there's something that you would like to tell us, the audience, just basically as an exhortation and encouragement. You, you've spoken a lot about the church, and I think that should ring really loudly in our ears that as a church we can do a lot for this uh, for this cause. But anything in particular that you would like to tell us, uh, encourage us in any way? Um, I think, you know, really it's, for, for Christians, for the church, it's to be faithful to what God has called us mm. to be and do. If we are faithfully loving Jesus mm. and loving people, then I do think a natural outworking of this is not only to you know make sure that we ourselves are healthy and thriving in a relationship with Jesus and that our families are thriving, that we're providing a safe place for our you know our children and um, and then our own community in our church and caring for those in our own church and being safe people for um, those in our church without judgment, understanding we are all sinners. We are all um, people who struggle with something, but it's just in different forms. So if we can create a place where people can feel comfortable to share, you know, what they're struggling with, but also I think then a natural outworking, if you are loving Jesus, if you are in intimate relationship with him, I think it's only natural that we're going to want to look in the community and, and others outside of ourselves and how we can love. And in that, I think the church always provides many vehicles to be able to do that. Um, but it might even be in our own personal communities of maybe one of our kids' friends who, you know, doesn't have a lot of support in their own family or may not come from a safe family family or, or don't have as many resources. Um, it might be teachers, you know, in our church looking at their students and, you know, being able to identify any kind of signs that they may be in trouble. Um, but it really is just, again, like you said, is just caring, just loving um, our communities and the people who we have opportunity to be in contact with. We Hopefully everything that God has blessed us with, um, there are resources for us to be able to to be the hands and feet of Jesus, you know, to our own communities. I think um, I think that's something that we can all do as well, right? It's not like you have to have a special title or be involved in a special organization, but each one of us can care for somebody. And uh, I liked what you said about sharing with people and, you know, finding their vulnerabilities because they're not going to share with you unless they actually have a trust with you. And so I think that that does take um, an investment of time. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, this is, this is great stuff. And again, there's so much we could do in our yeah. backyard. We don't have to go on missions right. internationally for like 30 years to do something. Mm -hmm. We could help out right here in our own community. Yeah. So. I think I want to say that, um, there is a place for everyone. And I have so many amazing, encouraging stories of even like one of our church members who owns a restaurant who provided dinner for free when we were having a support group for our kids nearby. Mm. Um, just this week, we got a call on our 24-hour hotline 
from a business in LA because a, one of our kids ran into their business running away from a man and you know they they fed her they were taking care of her they didn't know what to do but she was wearing one of our silicone bracelets that we give to our kids when we first meet them mm. that has our hotline number on it because sometimes the first time we meet them we may never see them again and so we tell them you know wear this bracelet and they asked the child can we call this number and they called us and we were able then to send somebody from our team to take them to a medical clinic. But this beautiful business treated this child with such humanity and mm. care. And, you know, that's how we as a community is just being, just having the eyes to see, just mm. being, you know, treating, not looking down on the people around us, understanding that everybody has a story for why they're in the circumstance that they're in. Um, and so there's a place for everybody. Not everybody is called to go direct face to face mm. with these kids. Um, and, but I love our church and the way that they support, even financially by funding some of the things that we're able to, you know, to, to fund organizations like Zoe so that we can go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, you know. Um, and so there, there's a place for everybody to do something. Wow, this is a great message. I mean, this is a good topic. And I feel like, again, <laughs> you know, we think that, oh, we need to go to the deepest corners of the earth to do something like this, but it's like in our backyard, Yeah. you know. And so I think the message is we can all have a part. So we uh, definitely want to thank you for your time, Esther. And... I'm sure if anybody has questions, they can also contact you, yep. right, for anything yes. further. Um, and then, um, you know, you can always contact myself or Gabriel O as well. So we thank you for listening in. Hopefully that was a very informative session. Have a good rest of your day. See you next time. Thank you. All right.